If you want to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. Recently we were making our way down I-35, and you always know you're getting close to Waco by some of the signs that you see. In fact, you, like, you see that one with the Texas Rangers where it says, One Riot. One ranger. I just kind of like that. You know, maybe some of you moms, like, you know, one riot, one mom. You know, that's all it takes, right? That's just such a Texas way of thinking things. You've got a big problem? Just one of our guys show up to take care of it all. Then, then we've got the uh, one that tells us about the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. And then, of course, Dr. Pepper Museum. I mean, just seeing that, like, you know, I just think I want to stop by there one more time. And then, you know, fellowship is actually pretty unique. We actually have one of our church members on one of the signs on I-35 now. We have Alton Jones. It says, welcome to the home of Alton Jones. And there he is, standing holding one of these great big baths that he caught there. And it's just great. I mean, you see these signs and you know, man, we must be getting close. In fact, we must be in Waco because look at these signs that are very apparent. Jesus tells us something that's very interesting. Just like there are signs that tell you that you're approaching and you're actually in Waco, Texas, There is a sign that tells you where your heart is at. In fact, you could refer to it as the treasure principle. And it's very simple. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In fact, Jesus gives this treasure principle in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. And I'd like you to take just a close look at it. He says in verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. And here is the treasure principle. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, if you want to know really where your heart is at, just look at where your treasure is going. Don't get it backwards. Don't think like, well, if I just send my treasure here, my heart's going to follow. No, your heart dictates your behavior. It dictates what you're going to do with your life, what your values are, what your beliefs are, your convictions, what you do with your behavior. And your heart certainly dictates what where your treasure goes. That's why it's the treasure principle. In fact, it is found throughout the entire Bible. Jesus is just giving in very principle form what is true of all of us and has been true of all time. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This treasure principle was, was very evident in the Old Testament. In fact, I'd like to take just a few minutes just to talk about how this was exemplified. It was really primarily exemplified in two forms, in tithing and in free will offerings. Now, all the way back to Genesis 14, you find where like Abraham is giving a tenth. And that's what a tithe means. It means a tenth. Abraham is giving his tithe a 10% to a high priest king called Melchizedek. And he gives it to him in Genesis chapter 14. It was its way of expressing honor and devotion to God of thanksgiving. And then when the law was given in the first five books of the Bible, the tithe giving of a 10%, that was actually enumerated numerous times where he spells it out, giving to God. And let me tell you why God has set this up in the Old Testament. You see, God wants us to learn to trust him. 
And at the same time, he wants us to learn to find him to be faithful. So he has set it up where we have opportunities to trust God with our finances. And at the same time, we find that he is faithful to provide. And that's why he had set it up. That was what he was accomplishing. And that's how the people of Israel, God's chosen people, function. They gave a percentage of their income. So if you'd like to see one example of it in Leviticus, the book of Leviticus ends with this statement. It says, thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. It is to be given to him. A tenth is to be set apart to him. Now, we go, most people think, well, that's great. There was a 10% of your crops, of your animals. They, that first 10%, that was given to God. And it's also spelled out like if you live too far away to bring your tithe, your, your 10%, your offering to God in Jerusalem at the temple, you could actually sell it, bring the money plus one-fifth. Now, many people think, well, it was in the Old Testament, you just gave, the Israelites just gave 10% of their income. Actually, that's not correct. They actually had multiple tithes. In fact, they had three of them. I'd like to just quickly tell you what they were. The first one was referred to as the Levitical tithe. Now, God had set aside the tribe of Levi. They were the ones who were serving in the temple. They were the ones of orchestrating the worship. They were making sure that the word was being taught. They were really serving as spiritual shepherds in Israel. Ten percent of everything that the people of Israel made was given, first of all, to a tithe to support these Levites. They didn't have any other livelihood. They were functioning in Israel as spiritual leaders. They were overseeing worship. They were in charge of taking care of the poor, making sure that the religious festivals in Israel were taking place. And so 10% right away went to them. But then there was also a second tithe. This was a tithe for the religious feasts and celebrations like Passover that occurred in Israel. So you would give a second 10%. To God, And this really would be used to support all of the nation's major festivals. In fact, in some respects, it was similar to like taxes today, where they were actually giving some of their income because Israel was a theocratic nation. Now, even though some of it went to civil purposes, still most of the, the giving here went to religious purposes. And then there was a third tithe that was given every three years. And this tithe was given to the poor, to the widows to the orphans. And so what they would do, Israel would bring their gifts, offering of grain, animals. There were major storehouses in the temple. If you live far away, you cashed it out, you added a fifth to it, you brought it in, and all of these finances and all of these farm animals and all of these crops were brought into Israel and they were disseminated, first of all, to the Levites who were in charge of the spiritual care of the people. They were used to support the festivals and they were also used to care for the poor for the widows and for the orphans. That's how it functioned. But on top of these tithes, these regular giving as part of Israel's culture, there were also something called these free will offerings, voluntary contributions above and beyond just this giving of this percentage of their income. And you see that, for instance, like when the, when the people of Israel were traveling in the wilderness God actually said, I want to build a tabernacle where I will reside among you. And so what the people did, you can read about this, this is actually a phenomenal event. In the book of Exodus, chapter 35 and 36, 
The people gave. In fact, they gave tremendously of their resources to finance the building of this tabernacle. In fact, it was so amazing. These people were so captured with the idea of expressing their love and their devotion to God that Moses actually had to restrain them. He's like, we have everything we need. In fact, he says we have more than enough. Another example of these free will offerings that were over and above their tithes actually occurred when they built the temple in Jerusalem. Now, again, we had a situation where people were giving generously, sacrificially, starting off with their leaders like David. But it was marked in First Chronicles chapter 29. You can read that opening chapter, that opening section of that chapter. They were giving tremendous amounts of their resources for the building of this temple. And so in the mindset of the people of Israel, it had been established clearly in their law. We give to God as an expression of our trust to him. And it's also an opportunity for God to continue to demonstrate his faithfulness in our life. And when they were moved away from a point of trusting God with their finances, it was actually considered to be like a real crime. In fact, God sent one of his prophets, a guy by the name of Malachi, to actually lay it out where he, God speaks to this prophet and says, we've got a serious problem. You see, the people of Israel had moved away from trusting God, relying upon him, even giving of their offerings. And God says, we've got to address this. And so in the final book of the Old Testament, he actually does. In Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, listen to God speak to these people who started withholding their tithes and their offerings. He says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? And listen to what God says. In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Bring all of the tithes, bring it into those storehouses in the temple so that my, there may be food in my house. And you test me in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. But you are robbing me. You who are clinging to your money as if it's your God and it's your source of protection and your source of security. You know what's happening is this treasure principle is indicating that your heart really isn't for me. Your heart is all about you and your own self-preservation in your eyes. And what you're really doing is you're robbing me. You are withholding from me what I have asked you to give. No longer are you trusting me. And furthermore, you're not experiencing my faithfulness in your life. Test me on this. Give to me. You may think, how in the world could we give, which equated to about 23% of their income. He says, try me. Test me on this. Find out if you would not give, if I'll not open up the flood house, the storehouse of heaven, and just pour out blessing upon you. But you test me on this. It's the treasure principle. If I am your greatest treasure, says God, it'll be reflected in your finances. And I'll provide. That was the treasure principle in the Old Testament. Now, the treasure principle actually continues right on into the New Testament. Jesus actually gives it, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, it's interesting, in the New Testament, eight times tithing or giving of a 10% is mentioned, all of which 
are referring either to the Old Testament practices or the contemporary Jewish practices as they were being practiced in, Jewish, in, in Jesus' day at that time. Tithing is not stressed in the New Testament. What the New Testament lays out are principles for giving. In fact, you might refer to them as grace-motivated giving. You see, grace-motivated giving comes from God-centered living. You might be going, well, wow, what, what would it look like for me to truly be doing, as Jesus says, like storing up my treasure in heaven? What, is it, what would it look like in my finances to give to God in such a way that it truly reflected that he's my greatest treasure in life? What would that look like? And there is an amazing example given to it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, in fact, I'm going to ask if you turn to 2 Corinthians because this is unforgettable. And if you forget it, you are probably missing out at the heart of grace-motivated giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul lays out what grace-motivated giving looks like. It is not a uh, bondage or some sort of legal, you just got to give this percent. It is actually giving that is motivated by the goodness of God in response to his grace, his mercy, his love in our lives. If you want to know what it looks like, you're going to want to put a little star by 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because this is the most clearest, detailed example of grace-motivated giving that we have in the Bible. Now, what is taking place, just to give you a little background here, is that Paul is on his third missionary journey. And he is in the process of taking an offering for the poor people in Judea, the poor Christians. This isn't the first time he did this. And he gladly uh, took part in this effort where he was collecting funds from Christians throughout now the Roman Empire, bringing them to support the Jewish, the, the Christians who, in Judea who had come out of Judaism who were suffering major persecution and a lot of poverty. He was taking the collection. He was going to bring it down and see that these Christians were supported. Now, the church at Corinth, they were like, we want to be involved in that. Absolutely. And they stood forth with some great promises. We're going to be involved you can count on us. But as you've probably studied the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you realize that there were some problems. They had some good rhetoric, but there was something that was, that was absent or was deteriorating in their midst. And that was their spiritual condition. They said, you can count on us. We're going to come through. But in reality, they had totally dropped the ball. And why is that? I'll just tell you. When you find a low level of giving in a church, it is reflective of a low spiritual level in the church. You see, when a church is not spiritual, when it's just kind of going through the motions, it's, uh, well, you know, yeah, I'm kind of affiliated with that church, but I kind of do my own thing. I've got my own independent Christianity. When you have a weak spiritual life among the members and the body of a church, it is reflected in their giving. And the converse is true as well. And that's what was happening at Corinth. And so this is what Paul does. Paul recognizes the situation. He realizes this is really an amazingly blessed church. And they have so much opportunity for growth and maturity. God could do some amazing things if these people will truly trust God and find him to be their greatest treasure. And so he says, this is awesome. He gives them some examples of some churches that had actually been captured by God's grace, that weren't just kind of going through the motions. And they are the churches in Macedonia. Now, Corinth is in the south part of Greece. 
The churches in Macedonia, which are Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica, they're in the north part of Greece. They're not really that far apart, and they would certainly know about each other. And the thing about the churches in Macedonia, where Corinth was wealthy and well-to-do, the churches in Macedonia were actually impoverished and very poor. In fact, the Macedonian region had been, for 200 years, had been a Roman province. And Rome had ravished these people. He had taken all sorts of money. And furthermore, they had a lot of wars up there. And so these people were suffering from poverty. And to make matters worse for the Christians, not only were they living in a situation where Rome had run them over and basically deteriorated their economy, and they were facing all these wars, but there was widespread, deep-seated persecution of the Christians in this particular area. And so Paul says, hey, Guys, I want to bring to your attention the churches in Macedonia. I want you to see what God is doing in their life by grace. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he actually picks it up and he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. We want you to know about how God's grace is working in these churches. Verse 2. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. You know how, how persecuted and how difficult life is for them. You know that they are actually living in a situation of deep poverty. But notice how he describes the characteristics of grace motivated giving. Notice abundance of joy. You, you, sometimes we think of like poverty and affliction and it's just sadness and tears and, and depression and discouragement. And sometimes that is with it. Don't get me wrong. But he says, let me tell you what grace looks like in this situation. There's abundance of joy. Even though they have deep, deep poverty, they overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They, they, they are giving beyond anything we could ever expect. And it highlights a principle that Paul actually speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. He says, each one must do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a, does anybody know what it says? A what? A cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. You want some examples of that? Here's some churches up in Macedonia. They're not experiencing untold wealth and amazing economy. No. They've got poverty, affliction. But let me tell you, when the grace of God, the goodness of Christ, fills your heart, it fills us with joy. It fills us with the ability to overflow with liberality. Not only that, they're joyful and they're generous, but look what he says in verse 3. He says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. This is amazing. He's according to their ability. Now, obviously, just like in our church, everybody has different incomes, right? Some have pretty small incomes. People in our church have pretty sizable incomes. And so according to their ability, just like in this church here, they gave. They gave according to what they they could, okay? And he says, but this was what was so surprising. Not only according to what they could give, but notice what he says, and beyond their ability, they not only proportionate, but they were actually sacrificial in what they could give. They were sacrificial. They were giving beyond what we could ever expect. What is going on? And, and notice in verse 4 what he says, And they were begging 
begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. They were eager. They were, they were pleading, we want to be involved in this, this word participation is, where, is koinonia, in this fellowship with the saints. You see, when God's grace permeates our life, we move beyond the self-centeredness of life to seeing others and what God is doing in the world. And there is a heart to want to be involved to experience, to be a part of what God is doing, to step out in faith, to give not only proportionately, but even sacrificially to, Lord, what are you doing? And it is an amazing joy. And I'll tell you, these churches up in, like in Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and up in Macedonia there, it seems to be, this seems to be the pattern of Christianity. When we look at some of the poorer countries of the world and we look at the Christians that are living there, and even thriving, that have nothing. One of the characteristics of these churches is that they are giving churches. Where does that come from? Well, I'll tell you, it comes from God. When I was in Russia several years ago, I was teaching a class on hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting the scriptures, understanding what does the Bible mean. And I was in this class, and I had a translator. I don't I speak just very few words of Russian, so I had a translator. And in my class were primarily people that lived in a poverty situation. I actually went to one of their homes. They, they, all they could, have, they could afford to give me, and they gave me their very best, was a cup of tea. They didn't even have sugar. So, I mean, no heat. You wear the same clothes every single day. I mean, we're talking extreme poverty. These are the students in my class. And and I found that while I was over there, I was learning far more from them than they probably were ever learning from me. And I, so what I had them do is I would actually have them read the morning devotional before we got our class started for the whole day. And I'll tell you, that was such an eye-opener. I heard some of the most powerful devotionals in my life. One I never forget. A woman by the name of Nadia. This woman had nothing. At the time I was leaving the class, her children had been quarantined because in Russia, that's still how they're handling problems. They don't know until they just quarantined her children. And she gave a devotional that morning on giving. So I'm sitting here and Natasha, my translator, is telling me and I'm listening. And I am, I am just moved beyond belief as this woman talks about giving to the Lord. And she's got tears coming down her eyes because she's expressing to her, her classmates, her friends, I want to give and I would like to give more. But my one problem is I have no more to give. End of class, huh? What, what more could you say after you've just seen an expression of a woman whose heart is so captured by the Lord Jesus Christ that she'd like to give everything she has? Her one problem is that she has no more to give. Where is the source of this Grace-motivated giving. Where is the root that produces this kind of fruit in our life? Where does it come from? Is, it, is there anybody that's interested? Is there, would anybody really like to know? Or should we just kind of close our Bibles and ah, kind of sing a little song? Let's get out of here. Is, is there anybody want to know? If you do, the answer is found in the very next verse. It's found in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You want to know where this kind of giving comes from? Look at verse 5. And he says, and this, not as we had expected, but you might want to underline this. I have in my Bible. But they first gave themselves 
to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They first gave themselves to the Lord. This first is not speaking of a chronological first. First thing we do, we give ourselves. No, this is first a priority. Our, their top priority was, first of all, to give their lives as a sacrifice to God. We first gave ourselves fully to the Lord. And what came from a heart that is given fully to the God? Why, it's reflected in what you do with the money that he gave you. You want to know where this kind of giving came from, from these people that had so little? They had first given themselves to the Lord. Let me tell you this, friends. It will not do any good to give our possessions to God unless we first give ourselves. I do not want you to think like, well, you know, like a little throw a little money to God's kingdom work. Put it, give it to the church there. Be fine. No. You know what God's after, don't you? Your heart. He wants all of you. Don't think you're going to throw $100 at God like, oh, okay, I've done my thing there. No. He wants your heart. He wants you to know the fullness of his goodness and his of grace, the magnificence of knowing Jesus Christ. And when we know him as he is, it will reflected in every area of our life, most certainly in our finances. You want to find out how to live like this, live life by faith and on the edge. It's found in verse five. You first give yourself to the Lord and then watch him work in you. And, you know, what? let me tell you what happens when you give yourself to the Lord. We move away from being reservoirs. We're just kind of collecting water here. Starting to smell bad, but we, gotta, we just got this reservoir going here. We move from being a reservoir to a conduit of blessing. Where God gives and it flows through our lives and he accomplishes our, his work through us. And that is what he's intended to do all along. He wants us to demonstrate that we trust him And we demonstrate that with a giving of our finances. And he at the same time demonstrates, I am faithful. And I will provide and I have provided in you. And let me tell you, this is such a critical subject. Please do not tune out. Because God is seeking to accomplish a work in each of us just like he was in the church in Corinth. Look what he says. Look at the importance of grace-motivated giving. Verse 6, he says, so we urge Titus. That as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. And this is what I want you to see. Look at verse 7. But just as you abound in everything, you know how you're really growing in all these different areas, like in faith and in utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you? You know how you're growing in all these different areas of your spiritual life, of who you are as a being? Look what he says in verse 7. See that you abound in this gracious work also. You're abounding in all of these different things, but you need to know something. You're incomplete. You see, God wants to work in all of our lives, not in, in all aspects, not just like we're, we're gracious and we're kind to people or we're joyful or experiencing a certain degree of, of peace, but in every area, including our finances. I'm not sure where we get the idea like, well, my financial life, that's, that's separate. I got my spiritual letter here, but my financial life is separate. Actually, they're totally tied together. Biblical giving is not done in a vacuum in relation to other Christian virtues. God is interested in transformation, transforming all of you from the inside 
out and it'll be reflected also in your giving. Furthermore, it actually gives, not only develops our maturity, it furnishes proof of one's love. Look at verse 8. It says, I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. When you give like this, it actually shows that you have a heart of love. And he also says, and this is, this is amazing, probably one of the most powerful verses in the book of Second Corinthians, which has many, is verse 9. You know, when you give like this, not only do you further your maturity, not only do you furnish proof of your love, you actually follow in the footsteps of the Savior. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now he just brings it all back down to Jesus. You know about Jesus, don't you? Though he was, notice what the text says, though he was rich, second person of the Trinity, existed throughout all time, all sovereignty, all joy, all resources, everything belongs to him. He became poor. He took on humanity, flesh and bone. He exposed himself to this world and the cruelty. I mean, he no sooner was born and they're trying to kill him, right? And that was kind of the pattern for his whole life. In fact, they did. They killed him with two other criminals. He became poor. He actually set aside the independent exercise of his divine prerogatives. Why? For this purpose. So that you and I might be rich. Not necessarily rich monetarily, but rich in salvation, rich in joy, rich in peace and honor and majesty and forgiveness, that we might become heirs of Christ. That is why he laid laid himself down on that cross. That is why he came to make you and I wealthy in him and the characteristics and the attributes and the position that we have in Jesus Christ. You might want to think of it this way. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He's telling the Corinthians, hey, you want to you experience the grace of Christ, don't you? Look to Jesus Christ and look how he gave of himself. You know, we've looked at the treasure principle it's throughout the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's all throughout the New Testament. Big question is, is it in you? How is the treasure principle being manifested in your life? You know, where, where the treasure is, there your heart will be also. How is the treasure principle going to be reflected in your life? You see, we're not here for just us. We are here and dedicated to the glory and the exaltation of our God. Not to be known just as kind, nice people, but to be known as God-loving people. Trusting him, dependent upon him, and seeking to see his faithfulness in our life. Friends, if the treasure principle is going to be true in our life that reflects that God is our greatest treasure, then we actually have to have purposeful giving in our life. We have to put our finances out on the line where God shows himself to be preeminent in our finances, and we are trusting him to provide. It has to become part of our mindset. I mean, we're talking about grace-motivated giving. There is no set amount given in the New Testament. Like, you have to tithe, you have to give 10%, or 23%. 
But let me just throw something out at you. Isn't it something uh, amazing? Isn't it amazing that when New Testament believers, especially people like us, you know, we live in amazing wealth in our society compared to like ancient Israel. When we find that we're giving but a small fraction to God, what we've been given compared to what the, the Old Testament believers gave in their time. I mean, there's something that we have to look at and we have to address is that there's a breakdown if we're giving but a fraction of what God's people have historically given. We need to take another look at this concept of grace giving. Grace giving isn't like, well, it's just all mine and and I can do whatever I want because that's under grace. That is to misunderstand grace. To understand grace is to realize that I am united with Christ and he is everything in my life and I would like to give to him as an expression of my devotion to him. And let me say something. I, I know that at Fellowship Bible Church, we have people that are very faithful, gracious, even sacrificial in their giving. If you've been faithful with a little, be faithful with much. You know, if you can be faithful with a little, I mean, from a stewardship principle, I mean, man, if you've got somebody that's faithful with a little bit, you're going to give them more. Why? Because they've proven faithful. And by the way, that will be the case. You'll be faithful with God's giving you now. There will be opportunities, especially in the kingdom to come, where you'll give him further responsibility. But if you've been faithful with a little, let me encourage you, be faithful with much. Some of you may be familiar with a man by the name of Peter Marshall. He was a pastor in Washington, D.C. area. In fact, he was also the U.S. Senate chaplain until he died in 1949. There was a man in a church that came up to him and said, you know, Dr. Marshall, I've got a problem. Oh, really? What's, what's the problem? He says, well, okay, you know, I've been, I've been giving and tithing to the church for some years now. And when I was making about $20,000 a year, I said, you know what? I was able to do that. This is my problem. Well, what is it, sir? Well, now I'm making $500,000 a year. And there is just no way I could give $50,000. I mean, I just couldn't give $50,000. I've got a real problem. Dr. Marshall he says, oh, I agree. Well, do you mind if we just pray about this? Oh, certainly. So Dr. Marshall prayed with this man, and, and this is what he prayed. Dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you would help him. Lord, reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I mean, can you imagine what that, whoa, what are you doing? Lord? And I tell you that because, you know what, we, we, we when we're young, we're like, okay, I don't have anything. What's a little less? And so we give, we actually give a healthy percentage, like maybe 10%. Or maybe even more. But what happens is like, whoa, you get a raise, move, you get a promotion. All of a sudden you're making a little bit more money. I'm like, whoa, whoa, I can't give that amount. And we start rationalizing it. Friends, if you've been faithful with a little, be faithful with much. Be a conduit of blessing, not a reservoir. That is what God is seeking to accomplish in our life. If you do not make giving a priority in your budget on a monthly basis, guess what happens? Leftover giving. It's like, Whatever is left over. It's kind of like looking at your fridge like, oh, I guess we've got one hot dog left. You just kind of throw that out there. No. That's what will happen if giving to the Lord is not your priority. It, it, that's what happens. And you say, well, oh, man, you're talking about like seriously giving. 
not like just dropping a few coins in everyone's like, yeah, well, you can't, you know, I can't because I mean, I got my job and you don't want my job. You want to hear about my job? And then are you alive? Do you know that a lot of the economy and it's, it's kind of shaky and, and, and the, we're in a war. Did anybody tell you that? I mean, giving like that, is, is that possible? Well, let me ask you a question. Who's in charge of the economy? Now, you're like, well, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, right? Uh-uh. You know who's in charge? God. He's in charge. He's the sovereign one. Where do we get this idea that, like, well, God lives in the church, and he's totally not understanding anything that's going on in the regular part of the world where I live Monday through Saturday? Uh-uh. God is saying, you trust me. I am the God of all creation. I am the God of salvation. And I am the God who is going to set the record straight because I am coming back. But trust me, you test me on this. And if you are going to live in the way that I have designed, you first have to give yourself to me. Put me first. Have you ever noticed like when kids start giving? Maybe you've seen this with your kids. Like they get a little birthday money and, you know, maybe you've been talking about giving at your home. And, and so like they give like a major percentage, Right. Or they might, I think I'll just give all to God, right? Okay. And, and my parents are like, do you know what you're doing? Like, oh. Well, yeah, you don't have to really give that much, you know, right? And we, we kind of help groom them, right? Where does that come from? I'll, I'll tell you where that comes from. That comes from culture of fear and greed. And let me tell you what God wants to do. He wants to bring us back to a point of childlike faith. Where God is everything, and we're trusting Him. And I'll just tell you, just even from my own personal example, and there's a lot of people who could stand up here and just say, it is a joy to give to the living God. To see Him at work in our church through a variety of ministries, in our missionaries, what God is doing on our campus, and special ministry endeavors. I mean, when you give and you're involved, I mean, it excites you, and you want to know, hey, tell me what's going on, and you're praying more, and you're more involved, because you are experiencing what God has always intended you to experience. His transformation flowing through your life, and it is amazing, it is exciting, it is thrilling, and I can tell you, at Fellowship, there's a lot of you that are experiencing just that. Let me just tell you about giving at Fellowship. It's anonymous. I only know of the giving patterns of one family in this church. It's the Call family. There's only actually one person that knows about anything about giving here at Fellowship. It's our bookkeeper, and I tell her, I want you to forget. But let me tell you who it's not anonymous with. God. It is not anonymous with him. If your treasure is Christ, if the hope that you have is the presence of heaven, we can experience the fullness of his joy when giving becomes our priority. So this is what I want to do. I just want to put it out there as a challenge to every person a part of Fellowship Bible Church. By grace, set a giving goal where God's your top priority. Now, this can be 10%. In fact, that's a very healthy number. And a lot of people have said, you know what, I'm really going to focus on that. For some of you, maybe it's like, I need to start giving. This is an area that I need to grow, like the Corinthians. And there's some of us in here that we can actually give more than 10%. In fact, I'm, I'm certain there has to be people in our church that are giving more than 10%. Some of these people talk to me because they're so excited about what's God doing now. And I'm so thankful that we're moving in this direction. And I, Tell me more about how I can be involved. 
But friends, we have to remember this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's the treasure principle. On the wall of President Lyndon Baines Johnson's presidential office, there was a framed letter that was written by Sam Houston to his great-grandfather Baines. Now, you don't have to live in Texas long to find out that Sam Houston is a very important, influential man in Texas history. He, he was actually uh, served as a president of the Republic of Texas. After Texas joined the Union, he served as a senator, and later he became the governor of Texas. Now, what you may not be familiar with is that Lyndon B. Johnson's grand, great-grandfather, Baines, was actually very instrumental in seeing Sam Houston place his faith in Jesus Christ. And it happened when, at the age of 61. Now, if you study Sam Houston, you find out that this guy was a little bit on the test out of things. He was coarse. He was belligerent. But when the grace of God got a hold of this man's life, there's only one word for it. Transformation. In fact, Sam Houston was baptized Rocky Creek, which is about two miles south of Independence, Texas, not too far away from Bryan College Station. And when he was baptized, there was just a throng of people that came. All these crowds came to see this man, Sam Houston, such an important man, such an unlikely man to ever become a Christian, actually being baptized and confess his faith in Jesus Christ. And so after the baptism took place, Sam Houston made this statement. He said, you know, I would like to pay half of the local minister's salary. What? Some guy said, why would you want to do that? And I want you to listen to his reply. He said simply, my pocketbook is baptized too. Friends, I want to leave you with that thought. When we're followers of Christ... We follow in the tradition of those who give themselves over to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're 6 or 61 or 92. And God begins his transformational work in all of our life, in our character, in our thinking, in our perspective, in our convictions, and most certainly with our finances to show that God is great and he is faithful. I'd like to uh, have you consider your story. And while you're considering your story, I'd like to invite Steve Smith to come forward. Steve is actually going to share with us a little bit about his story and how the treasure principle has been work in him. Steve? Back in the um, early, mid-80s, when we had three kids... I think they were approximately ages six, four, and three. Kathy was not working. And we were on a one-salary family. And it was obvious that someday those kids were going to college. And uh, we were at Fellowship Bible Church. Believe it or not, we were in existence then. And uh, we decided to go to a financial class based on Christian principles at Fellowship Bible Church. It was taught by um, John Kachera. It went to a second class three years later. It was all based on Ron Blue's teachings. And Kath and I realized that we had lived under the principle of 
everything's ours, and what's left over is God's. And I was telling Kathy, as Grant was teaching today, what he has said, I'm going to repeat. We decided through those two classes and through reading God's Word that we could not live like that any longer. We had no idea how we were going to make it down the road at that current time. And so what we started doing was applying Christian principles. The first was we decided to give to God first every month. That's hard. That is very hard. We started sacrificing because we decided there's only so much income and there's only so much outgoing. If we give to God first, then hopefully we'll find a way. Now, when you take three kids to a restaurant, which we didn't do very often, but when you do and you make them order water, that is so frustrating to them. I've never seen our kids become so creative with sugar and lemons in all my life. We wore more clothes at home in the winter. TXU is a wonderful company, but we wanted our money to go to God first. We started cutting back, making small decisions that led to lifelong lifestyles. We started giving to God first and instead of him getting the leftovers, we had the leftovers. It's tough telling a teenage kid on the 28th of the month, no, we're not going to the grocery store until the 31st. But we live by that. And what had happened over a period of time, things started happening that I wish I would have kept a diary. We cannot explain where everything came from. Three kids now are educated, married to three godly spouses, and they're off the payroll. We started receiving gifts that I just can't explain. You know, when God said he's going to bless you, he doesn't say it's a pot of gold. It can be a healthy wife, a healthy life. It can be a job that you never expected. It's blessings beyond our wildest imagination. You know, God loves surprises. What's sad is how many times we shut the door and he can't give us his surprise. Let me share a couple of things with you and I'll sit down. When God says no, you better listen. Back in the 80s, we applied for a loan for a home and we prayed about it and God said no. No, everybody can buy a home. God said no. Because of that, we were able to apply, I'm sorry, to invest in a land deal over in East Texas, and we tripled our money. If we'd have bought that home, we couldn't have done it. Just a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to work for someone that I wanted to all my life. Everything was in place. The job, the timing, I was ready. They were ready. I was offered the job, and I prayed to God for guidance. He said no. I was devastated. And it took me 
a couple of years before I realized why he said no. I'm not going to share that with you. But he said no and he meant it. I also tell you, be careful what you pray for. When Shannon, our, our daughter, was at college, we had five cars that averaged 150,000 miles a car. That was the lifestyle we lived to get them through college. We prayed that that car would last until she was through college. She graduated on a Saturday and moved home on a Sunday. Sunday afternoon, on the way home, she calls. The engine blew up. <laughs> True story. After I got over the frustration, I turned to Kathy and said, why didn't we pray they would last until she got married? <laughs> then it could have been her husband's problem, not ours. That's the truth. So when you think there's no hope, when you think it's too late, when you think I can't make those sacrifices, it's not true. Why do you think there are over 2,000 verses on stewardship of this good Bible? Because he's serious. When you give it all to him, he will bless you beyond your wildest imagination. I know. Because we have three kids who are trying to do the same thing. Do they make mistakes? You bet. Do we make mistakes? Yes. Are we on the right path? Yes. And the greatest joy, this is all he asks, to give him the glory. After all these years, here I am today, on behalf of Kathy and I, giving him the glory. That's all he asks. Thank you. I just have this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for how you've been working in our midst today. Thank you for the privilege it is to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, as we've talked about an issue that is so important to you, we ask, Lord, that it would be important to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to teach our kids to model what healthy giving looks like, that they might also lay a strong foundation for the future. Father, I pray for those who are feeling the effects of these current economic times. I pray that you would right now give them the full sense of the magnitude of these words given to us. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I pray, Lord, for the person who has come here today, who has sensed your leading in taking this next step of maturity, especially in the area of finances, Lord, would you give them the courage to step forward by faith, that you would lead them, support them, and bless them. And Father, I pray that you break the power of money and greed for the bigger and the better in our life, that we might find our satisfaction and our sufficiency and our joy in you. Bring us all to a point of surrender a place where we are seeking you first as first priority. Have your will in our lives individually, as families, and in our church, and in this world. We ask, Lord, for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.